Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to The Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Art Epstein. Dr. Epstein, it's a tremendous pleasure to have you on Sandbox Stories. Oh, um, I, I can't tell you, I'm really excited to be here, especially with all the craziness. This is a moment of sanity, Scott. Well, let's have some fun. So for many in the audience, you're known as the editor of the digital newsletter, Optometric Physician. And I know that a lot goes into those writings. Tell us a little bit of behind the scenes what it's like to write a weekly editorial. Uh, a nightmare. It's absolutely a, it's a nightmare. I, I've gone past writer's block, you know, for, for anyone uh, who's, who's tuned in who uh, has had writing assignments, whether it's at school or, you know, for, for pleasure. Uh, sometimes it flows, you know, sometimes you, know, you, you have an idea and it just comes out. Uh, very few people have um, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, sort of Damocles over their head every week. You know, it's like people say, oh, how do you do that? And I, I, have, I have no idea. I mean, it's just, how do you come up with a different thing? Uh, you know, I don't know, but I'm terrified that I'm repeating it over and over again. So, uh, you know, I, I've, you know, I'm interested in people. I always have been. Uh, I was a psych major in college. And uh, so, you know, how people think and work is interesting to me. How optometry, you know, has gone from, you know, a, a refractive only profession uh, to where it is today uh, is been fascinating to me. So I, you know, I try to stay connected. I uh, skulk around, you know, ODs on Facebook, and you know, I, I try not to answer questions and get pulled into like, oh, you said this or you said that. But uh, I get ideas from that. I do a lot of uh, normally. I do a lot of traveling. My wings obviously have been clipped, uh, you know, like everyone else's, uh, and going to. Uh, you know, another area, a small town, you know, talking to people, I get ideas for, uh, for stories. And uh, I don't really have writer's block anymore. I can usually come up with something. Sometimes I know it's a home run. You know, I feel like uh, like Mickey Mantle, you know, hitting, you know the 60th out of the park. Or the crack off the bat, yeah. <laughs> it's just crack. And it's just, oh, the feeling is, is good. And it's just, you know, the, the piece is almost perfect. Uh, and then, of course, I get, you know, people who write in and go, how could you say that? It was, you know, you consulted, you know, my grandfather who was an optometrist many years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I try to explain I mean no harm. You know, I come, I come in peace. Uh, and uh, my main goal uh, is really to make people think, you know, and, and so I write provocative pieces. You know, I have opinions. <laughs> you know, I'm known for that. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not afraid to share them. Thanks, Ma. Uh, <laughs> well, you do have opinions, and you've been a really vocal defender of optometry, and you've really inserted yourself in controversial topics. But I want to hit on the idea of what it was like to be a media spokesperson. When the Fusarium outbreak took place, you were right there for the AOA and for the profession. What was that experience on that media tour like? Well, it, it, it was actually one of the highlights of my career, and actually probably my personal life. Uh, I, should, I should say, you know, Thank goodness I married a very understanding woman because, you know, I get very focused on things. So I put everything on hold. You know, I, I, I canceled, you know, speaking gigs. Uh, you know, I, I stopped seeing patients. You know, I was working 16, 18 hours a day. 
uh, answering phone calls, you know, people I don't think realized how much was involved. Uh, the AOA at that point was unbelievable. It was just amazing. It's just well organized. We had a, a great PR firm that I interfaced with. Uh, you know, I think I'm a natural, you know, PR kind of guy. Uh, and I saw an opportunity uh, to take optometry, and instead of being number two and you know beat up uh, and losing contact lenses, because you know unfortunately the Academy of Ophthalmology at times has taken uh, opportunities to make us look bad and make patients challenge, uh, you know, their their thinking about contact safety and things of that sort. Uh, and uh, so it was it was perfect synergy. Uh, I remember we. Uh, met at Vision Expo East, uh, and it, it hit. And I was actually fortunate because I kind of broke it to the board back then, because uh, I had connections, uh, you know, literally all over the world. So I had connections in Singapore, and uh, uh, I heard about this early on. And I said, "Hey, we have something really big coming." And they were phenomenal. They said, uh, "I was chair of the contact lens and cornea section." They said, "Go with it." Uh, and um, by Monday morning. We were getting calls from major media, you know, thanks to the, uh, I think it was Hill and Knowlton, amazing, you know, amazing oh, yeah. law firm. Uh, and so uh, I had a, a, an interview and they said, you know, we want you to, you know, fly back to New York uh, to uh, tape Good Morning America, which, you know, I realized was, you know, one of those amazing opportunities uh, for the profession. Uh, so, of course, typical New Yorker, I said, well, I just flew back to Phoenix. I'm not flying back to New York. And they said, well, it would be much better if you do it in, in our studio. And I, I said, well, I don't care. So, I, you know, you'll be going to tape it in Phoenix. Uh, and uh, I made a critical mistake before the taping that I think no one knows about. You know, I knew I needed to be well-rested. So, uh, I had run out of shirts, you know, because I had been traveling so much. So I had to run out at like 10 o'clock or 9.30 and buy a shirt. And uh, I got a nice tie. It was a nice blue and red tie. And, uh, you know, I had that all set. And then about midnight, I took an Ambien, you know, because I wanted a good night's sleep. Uh, not actually doing the time calculation that I was getting up at about 3.30. Uh, and so, you know, the alarm goes off and I go, uh, like where I, I literally was very groggy. I'll put it that way. I'll use wow. that. Uh, so I was interviewed. It was, it was amazing. Uh, you know, I remember listening to the run up, uh, and, uh, I'm normally not nervous with these things. And, uh, I realized that that moment, that time, that one thing could destroy my life forever. You know, if I, cause if, it was live. If I messed that up, that's it. I could never face another, certainly not another OD, but maybe another human. Uh, and, it, and it actually went reasonably well, considering, you know, I was you know, kind of gorked. Uh, in fact, it went very well, considering I was gorked. Got the message across, and um, probably the, the greatest moment uh, was when Jim Saviola called, who was uh, at the FDA at the time, and he said, I have to tell you, you guys are unbelievable. The AOA is so far ahead of any other organization. Uh, and the great thing is that literally changed how optometry was, was viewed. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the AP style book all of a sudden said optometrists and doctors was the first time, you know, in our history where that happened. So it was a, it was a great moment uh, personally. It was a great moment for optometry. Let's go back in time uh, and talk a little bit about your Bronx upbringing. It was you and your brother. And you did schooling in New York City and some tough schools. 
Um, your brother actually ended up influencing you to optometry. So what was that journey like from upbringing in SUNY as you and your brother uh, followed this maybe rough and tumble path? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, you know, I, it was not a West Side Story. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a, a gravity knife yeah. in my boot. Uh, I had a <laughs> in my boot, but not a gravity. <laughs> it was, uh, I, you know, my brother was more the, the ethereal academic, you know, give him a good book, you know, uh, the, you know, vagaries of quantum mechanics on a sunny, uh, you know, afternoon, and he would sit and read for hours, and I'd want to go play state ball, you know, so I was more the you know, the practical, you know, kind of person. Well, that kind of shifted because he, he became a big game hunter and things like that. And I, and I would go, kill a fly, don't kill a fly. So, uh, you know, kind of shifted shifted gears later on. Uh, it was it was actually funny. I was um, interested in engineering. In fact, you know, I think, I think, like an engineer. Uh, you know, I, I approach things very structurally. In fact, my, you know, dry eye focus, I tell patients, you know, I approach this as an engineering problem to a large extent. Uh, and uh, all my friends were engineers. I was, you know, into ham radio. I had headphones on and, you know, I was Morse code and uh, total geek, uh, fascinated by technology back then. Uh, and uh, suddenly I became much more interested in, in you know, people and, and how people functioned and worked. I, I read every book on on, you know, uh, psychology I could find. I was an expert on Freud, uh, decided I was going to go uh, get a career in psychology. Uh, and uh, that was my major in college initially. And until, and, and again, this was the, uh, this was the 70s where everyone was a little wonky. And I realized that based on the friends I had in college, if I had to deal with their problems, uh, I would probably end up jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, by the time I was, you know, 30. And uh, so uh, that kind of led me to experimental psychology. And then that led me to neuropsychology. And so my plans were in my senior year uh, to uh, eventually get into a PhD program in neuropsychology. Uh, so I packed up during the summer uh, before my senior year, my girlfriend in my, you know, old Dodge Dart GT, uh, which <laughs> back then I, you know, would service myself, you know, you'd always see me, you know, you could see grease on my fingernails, uh, went up to visit my brother, I think it was in his residency, uh, and he made two things very clear. He, he said, I don't like your girlfriend. And uh, he was right, actually. You know, he, was, he was an amazing brother, you know, good sense. And, uh, you know, as I look back on it, he really, you know, watched out for me. Just an amazing human being and, and a great brother. Uh, and he said, don't go into, uh, oh, you know, research, you idiot. Uh, he actually said other things which I can't share with you. But, you know, he said, you'll be working in the, in the, in the basement of City College in a lab with rats your whole life. You'll be miserable. You'll make no money. And I said, but I really love research. He said, you know, go into a healthcare profession. You'll be able to do research and, you know, you'll make a decent living. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, remember these words, whatever you do when you're interviewed for wherever you go, don't mention money or making a decent living. Uh, so, you know, I said, okay. And I went back and I, uh, and I uh, uh, took organic chemistry. I aced it and it was natural for me. And I said, okay, you know, uh, feet, I can't stand feet, not doing feet. And uh, I was thinking, yeah, dentistry, I don't know. I don't really like blood and saliva that much. It's kind of gross. Uh, chiropractic, that's not for me. Uh, you know, let's see what else. Well, that kind of dentistry with the blood and saliva or optometry. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just look 
been better than, than that, uh, applied to SUNY, uh, got an interview, uh, met with uh, Dr. Robert Rosenberg, who uh, taught you know basic uh, optometry back then, uh, and uh, he said, "So you know, why do you want to be an optometrist?" And remembering my brother's words, I said, "You know, uh, you know, I, I like technology. I like people. You know, I want to do things that help people, uh, and I can't think of a better way of making a decent living than doing something like that." So he looked at me and he said, "Put your hand out." And he shook my hand and he said, you're the first honest person I've interviewed in three years. <laughs> Welcome to SUNY. And that was, and that was it. Uh, it was one of the few times I've been listening to my brother and I mentioned, hey, I like to make a good living. Uh, and uh, and uh, I got it. And that, and that was it. And then when I got into optometry, I said, what the hell is this? You know, it's like, I don't like selling stuff. I'm not like a sales guy. Of course, Everything in life is about selling something, generally yourself, uh, which of course I, I didn't realize back in my naive state, my young uh, naive state. Uh, and uh, and I said, ah, you know, this refraction stuff is okay, but I, I'm going to get bored with which is better one or two pretty quick. So I had this vision, you know, like optometry could be a lot more. And then, you know, that was kind of the direction of my career. Profession met your feet. That's great. Just a little bit more about your brother. You you have uh, you know incredibly thoughtful words about him. Um, tell us a little bit more about him. Yeah, he's um, uh, you know it's funny you don't realize it. You know you never know what you have till you don't. And uh, so he unfortunately passed away uh, at fifty two from an aneurysm. And, uh, he had done very well. Uh, he practiced in uh, Minot, North Dakota. Because you know, I, I knew I knew why he did. He was trying to get as far away from my parents as any possibly <laughs> could, uh, and without leaving the continental U.S., Minot was probably that place. Uh, and uh, he was, a, you know, he was a curmudgeon. You know, one of the things that was great is my mom was a very straight shooter. You know, she would say what she thought, and I didn't even realize that. But you know, she. Uh, like like uh, her children alienated people by being, <laughs> being very direct. Uh, but you know, we inherited that gene, and we also inherited uh, an intolerance for uh, stupidity, primarily our own. So you know, if you can't, if you if you accept your own stupidity, then you have to accept everyone else's. Uh, so my father uh, was extremely judgmental, and uh, not in a in, in a intentionally bad way. It's just he grew up in a very, very difficult environment. You know, he came over as a kid uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and he had a lot of loss in his life. So he really wanted to protect us and that was driving us, you know, driving us to be better. So we were never quite good enough. So uh, my brother ended up uh, being the first uh, entering class and make masters. Uh, he had two in medical sociology and something else and uh, always wanted to be a, a physician that was his you know his dream uh, and he realized that he got in he was the only I think the only American or maybe one of two to get into that Canadian uh, medical school and it was a great school because it was modeled kind of after Harvard you know very interactive group uh, learning uh, he, he really did well there uh, he uh, ended up board certified in cardiology and uh, internal medicine but his interest was oncology and there were no boards back there. So uh, when he went to, he, he had a crossroads, like you know, I think all of us do, uh, academia. So he was offered a position at Yale uh, or a little bit more money at Minot. And he took, you know, he took the, uh, the more difficult path. Uh, 
an interesting guy, uh, was an instrument rated pilot, you know, had several planes, aerobatic planes. I mean, it was like, you know, if you would look at us as kids, you know, I was literally climbing off of furniture and hanging upside down, you know, uh, from things. And he was like, quiet, I'm waiting, you know, and, you know, I can imagine him in a plane, you know, like the Red Baron. Uh, anyway, uh, he uh, got bored, uh, I guess, in his um, early 50s with medicine uh, and went back uh, to actually University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, and got a master's in medical informatics uh, and worked for a year or two uh, for CERNA, which was a uh, actually, right up your alley, it was uh, it was a, a company that was putting in uh, uh, um, EHR systems in hospitals, uh, and uh, got bored with that. You know, I, I was just learning to do a lot of traveling, so we would exchange uh, uh, you know war stories about you know plane misconnections and things, uh, and then kind of got a little bored, I guess, with that. Then went back into his practice, uh, was there for about a year, uh, was going to retire early. Uh, and just, you know, I guess travel, uh, had a nice steak dinner, went upstairs, uh, my uh, sister-in-law heard a crash, and, you know, that was kind of the end. That was, a, that was a major shock for me, a major trauma. I had just lost my mom, just, a, you know, or we had just lost our mom a few months earlier, so it was like, it was a tough time. Sorry to hear that. So now I want to talk about your parents. Really interesting story. Your dad came to the U.S. from Europe, and your dad served in World War II, and then your parents got married, and your dad's family had an impact of the Holocaust. Uh, can you give us a sense of that? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. This is something that I really didn't fully understand. Uh, and uh, and I, I think a lot of people didn't understand it, not just, uh, you know, folks who were peripheral to it. Uh, I think, you know, certainly my generation and, and, and later, knew there was a Holocaust, knew there was World War II, but it was, you know, more historical than, than real. Unfortunately for my father, it was very real. So the, the only stories I knew uh, from him were, uh, you know, some of the unpleasantness of his childhood uh, and then, uh, you know, him coming here. But he just wouldn't talk. You know, he, he really wouldn't share a, a lot of it. Uh, my mom was fortunate. Her her parents came over from Romania uh, earlier, and uh, I believe they were married here. We, you know, uh, Shannon is a great uh, genealogy buff, so she's gone back and traced everything. She goes back to the Mayflower. You know, I go back to like uh, flour. You know, just flour. I have no no Mayflower. I'm like, you know, I'm like flour to make bread. You know, two two, two generations ago. But uh, so she can't trace most of my family and. Uh, you know, she's, you know, I, you know we, we don't watch that much TV, but certainly during COVID we watch more because we, you know, can't see friends and things like that. Uh, so we've seen a lot of genealogy shows and I've got to see things up close that I didn't know. So uh, I know I'm named after my father's favorite brother and I would assume he had a similar role uh, to my brother, you know, the protector. And he had a family with several kids. I knew they were uh, all killed during the Holocaust, but I didn't really feel it in a, in a sense. I mean, I know he was kind of filled with sadness, uh, and, uh, you know, it had, I knew it had changed him as I got older. Because, you know, we, have, we all have losses as we get older, and it takes a piece of us each time. So, uh, anyway, I was watching uh, one of the shows, 
Phoebe from Friends was on, and oddly, it turns out that her family uh, comes uh, from the same town uh, that my father grew up in. Uh, and I found out what happened to his family. They were led to a big pit uh, in, dug outside of town. They were shot and thrown into the pit, you know, a, a, just a mass a massacre. Uh, um, he, he, you know, he um, it was interesting that in the sense that he was very, very stoic. And, uh, you know, and as I watched these other genealogy shows, it was just one uh, on PBS that I absolutely love. Uh, and uh, they were able to trace the history back. One of the people was a was a, uh, a reporter for PBS. She was one of the first female reporters, and she didn't know very much about her past. But you know, she talked about, um, or rather, the exploration about her family uh, really touched on uh, things that was so resonant with me because they were so similar. Her father, who was a world famous violinist, who was able to escape because of his talent and his connections, uh, he wouldn't talk very much about, you know, he, how he lost his sister and how he, you know, and so some of those things, you know, I realized how it shaped my, my parents' view of the world, um, you know, and also, you know, we, I knew we were different. I grew up, uh, you know, in a, in a lower middle class, you know, working class neighborhood in the Bronx, you know, we had a one bedroom crummy apartment, uh, you know, we had a superintendent who, uh, enjoyed uh, scotches. I do apparently, but unfortunately in his case, I think it was wood alcohol. Uh, so there were times where he was kind of out of it for a while and forgot to order coal. Uh, so I remember, you know, uh, having you know periods of you know a couple of weeks with no heat uh, because the pipes would freeze, and then they'd have to come in and fix them. One one day we woke up and. Uh, our goldfish uh, was frozen solid. You know, it was like a, a stark <laughs> awakening. You know, hey, uh, Artie, come here. Look, the goldfish isn't moving. Like, ding, ding, ding. You know, frozen solid. My God, what a way to go! Uh, I'm sure it was painless. I'm sure it was painless though. But uh, so uh, you know, I would come home from from uh, kindergarten, and I and I'd say to my my father, I say, Hey, Dad, you know, where do we where do we come from? You know. Tommy, you know, came from Ireland, and Luigi, his his folks came from Italy, and my dad, you know, would say, uh, sometimes Russia, you know, sometimes sometimes Poland. So I go, can you be more specific? And I, of course, I didn't say that as like a five year old. I said, no, Dad, come on, where do we where do we come from? And he would look at me, said, sometimes Russia, sometimes Poland. I said, come on, come on, where do we come from? He said, sometimes Russia, sometimes Poland. And we get like you know. Like leave me alone, uh, and uh, you know every couple of years I'd say, "So, Dad, where do we come from?" It became like kind of a funny thing. Years and years later, uh, you know, both my parents had passed away, and we're going through papers, and I find this beautiful passport of my grandfather. You know, it was a typical European passport of the day. It was dressed up with a tie and a you know, big hat whatever. Uh, and uh, it says country of origin. It says sometimes Russia, sometimes Poland. <laughs> I started laughing. Imagine trying to explain that to, a, to an immigration guy. Like, so where do you come from? Sometimes Russia, sometimes Poland. So yeah, so we, we had a mixed past. <laughs> Interesting. Now, on the other side, you've been really fortunate to be in practice with your wife and um, you speak really highly of her. What on this journey of life, what brings you guys the most joy? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I really am. Because, um, you know, some people never find love. 
uh, and sometimes they find love and it's really not a good thing for them. You know, people do crazy things for love. Uh, you know, I was, it was actually, you know, kind of interesting. You know, I had, my career had taken a lot of different twists and turns and uh, one of those turns was uh, a lot of traveling. You know, I was doing a lot of uh, education all over the world. So I was speaking in, uh, you know, all over Asia, uh, and it, it took its toll on my first marriage, you know, and, and I think I got married too young, uh, and, uh, you know, I, if I could do it uh, over again, I would not have gotten married that young, and probably wouldn't have married the person I married, and if I would have advised her not to marry me, because, uh, you know, we were two ships in the night, we docked, it was great, uh, but, uh, it, you know, we, we were just not, uh, you know, of a similar, you know, mindset. Uh, you know, we still talk, you know, we're still friends. It's, you know, it's not that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it was just, it wasn't, it, it wasn't what it could have been. Anyway, I ended up divorced and uh, ended up traveling and I was invited to speak in Sedona. Uh, and I, you know, typical New Yorker go, wow, where the heck is Sedona? It was uh, red rocks, crazy, you know. Californians are all crazy. Uh, so I said, okay, all right. And I said, but I knew my brother was going to retire in Sedona. So I figured, you know, it must be something there that was of interest. Uh, so, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll drive up there, you know, no problem. So I drove up uh, and uh, I'm giving a lecture on God knows what, you know, infection or something like that. And there's this, you know, lovely, you know, young lady sitting in the middle of this, you know, large, uh, you know, lecture room uh, on the end. And uh, as I remember it, this is going to sound, you know, romantic. I think we may need to make a movie about it, you know, maybe with Tom Hanks, but uh, or maybe not with Tom Hanks, you know. But anyway, that's a, let's not go with the politics. But anyway, uh, I'm sitting there, uh, and she's like in color, and everything else is in black and white. And you know, I'm like, this is going to sound strange, but when I'm lecturing, I miss nothing. I mean, literally, I have like a recorder going. You know, if you're if you're sitting doing something and not paying attention, I've zoned in on you, and I'm looking at you. I know you. So, and then I can play it back. And the reason I did that is because I'm not a comfortable speaker. I'm actually a very shy, very private person. I know it sounds crazy. Saying, "Oh yeah, that's you. That's you, dude." <laughs> I am. I really am. So I go. I go into a different place. I literally transform into you know like uh, you know a rector man. You know, hey, look over here. Let's talk about whatever. So um, and she just stands out as different. And for some reason, I normally I consider you know speaking kind of work. I mean, I enjoy it obviously because you know keep on doing it. Either that or I'm a masochist, but um, you know I do enjoy it. And, but I, you know, it's work. So normally I'll finish speaking and I'll go to sleep and I'll take a nap or I'll, you know, go read or I'll do research or, you know, something. Well, I figured, you know, I have to go see Sedona, but let me stop and go down and, and uh, you know, see what's going on. Uh, Jim Colgane was lecturing uh, and Jim Colgane at that point was a you know, fairly active speaker. I don't think he's on the circuit, if you will, anymore, uh, but he always uh, put in these comical little film clips. So he was kind of an enjoyable guy to listen to. Uh, you know, maybe not as much content, you know, from a, from a clinical point of view, but he was enjoyable as hell. So I went down to listen to him and then, you know, people started coming up and talking to me and, you know, I go, okay. And, you know, and uh, anyway, Shannon uh, came over and we never stopped talking. I mean, we literally have never stopped talking from that day to this day. Uh, clinically, she's absolutely brilliant. 
you know, I when I first visited her in her practice, it was a gatekeeper practice. Now I had been on staff at a university hospital teaching residents for years. I've been in ophthalmology practices. I had really good relationships with ophthalmologists back uh, in New York. Uh, I was shocked because I would have thought she was practicing uh, as a you know general ophthalmologist. I mean, she was at that level and exuded that level of confidence. Uh, when we got into practice, I mean, she was she's just amazing, and people love her. She has this girly laugh, which I can't even reproduce. I don't even try. But you know, she's taking a, a golden pressure. She goes, ah, you know, she has this way. I sound like a horse, and she has this girly laugh, and you know, makes people smile. I mean, it's just I'm I'm working on when before we expand the practice, you know, I would hear laughter, and, and you know, and so she helped create the practice, and she's so detail oriented. And I'm big picture oriented. It just, it could not have been a better match. Um, sometimes we're just happy, you know, I could be sitting in the house, you know, watching a YouTube video or doing something like that. And she's doing, you know, she's doing a project, like she built furniture yes, last night. Like, <laughs> what is with, you know, like furniture? You know, her dad is like, you know, a woodworker. And it's like, uh, okay. And, but I'm just happy to be there. There's a certain, just, you know, it's it's like two pieces that fit. And uh, I'm not sure everybody has that. I hope everybody does in their life. Uh, but, you know, I'm really, I'm really fortunate. So, you know, we kind of really enjoy each other, which is, which is neat. That's wonderful. Um, when I asked you to give me a sense of what you think the biggest threat to optometry is, you said very simply, optometry itself. And this could be a topic for an entire show, but I mean, give me your sense as to what you mean by that. Uh, you know, optometry is self-select. Um, you know, again, I've spent half my career working with uh, medicine, and I've spent half my career working with optometry. I, I think most people don't know that, but you know, for, for the longest time, uh, I had much less to do with optometry than I did with with ophthalmology. Not that they welcomed me in and you know said you know here. You know, let me give you a hug. Uh, but um, you know, I got to see the nitty gritty of it. You know, during uh, you know my work at the hospital, one of the uh, one of the residents uh, was, I mean, uh, to be blunt, incompetent. I mean, just miserably incompetent. Uh, and uh, he uh, relied on me, so I'd end up in the emergency room. You know, he you know, he would call me up. He just couldn't figure out what was going on. Eventually, you know, they realized that. Uh, he was terminated in the beginning of his third year, which was, you know, bad for him, but, you know, good for the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I, I know how they work, uh, and I kind of know their personalities, and I know how we work, and I know our personalities. Um, you know, I, I, could, I could sum up the personality difference. Uh, I was uh, having dinner, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, with a guy named Robert Warner. Uh, Robert Warner became one of my, you know, closest friends. Uh, he was an Alcon uh, product manager who just got into anti-infectives, uh, and we were at the Academy of Ophthalmology in uh, in Florida. And he was told, you know, that I was kind of the guy to get to know because anti-infectives were an area of great interest for me at the time, uh, and. Uh, we were in a Japanese restaurant, and you know I love uh, Japanese food, uh, and he was just having a great time, and I was having a great time with drinking sake, and it was just great. And uh, he, I remember Joe Barr was singing in there, you know, it was just great. And he looked at me, and said, "You know," he said, "I 
no idea that you guys were so much fun. You're so much more fun than ophthalmology is. And and Robert, you know, I one of the things I love is I watched this guy's career take off and you know eventually he became, you know, like number two at, at Alcon and unfortunately uh, became ill and, and was forced to retire. But a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he got optometry. You know, we are such amazing, caring, patient-centric people. And we sacrifice for patients and we are underappreciated for it. Uh, the young optometrists getting out are so well trained, but we also have so a poor self-perception that we allow ourselves to um, fall into employment, um, you know, uh, I guess, situations that are really beneath us. And, uh, you know, we don't support one another. You know, what percentage of optometry supports their uh, state's uh, association or the AOA. And, you know, I, I, I get it. The AOA sometimes does things that piss people off. I, I understand. I think I don't think they do it intentionally, and I think they do it with the best interests, you know, with optometry at heart. And, uh, yes, I, you know, I, we could talk about, you know, how frustrated I was with their inability, their tone deafness at listening to dissenting opinion, you know, and, and their uh, desire to... Uh, Caution. Apparently, they they knew how politics was going to go in in 2020, so they just were testing it out early. Like, let's see if we can squash dissenting opinion, <laughs> you know. Um, and that goes right or left. So don't you know? Don't, don't brand me. Don't brand me one or the other. But um, you know, we we really instead of looking at ourselves and saying, "Boy, we're really wonderful," you know, look look how far we've come in 50 years. We've gone from you know almost the back of a, a wagon in the West or the back of a jewelry store in the East, you know, putting on frames and fitting frames to saving people's lives. You know, I can't tell you how many times we've literally saved people's lives in this practice, and we use technology to do it. You know, and we've invested in it. But so many optometrists say, "Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I really want to have my own practice. I'm going to just work in a commercial place to pay off my student loans." You are selling yourself so short, and and you know there's so much out there that we can do. Uh, you know, optometry needs to really uh, develop a little bit of backbone and a little bit of self-respect. And uh, you know, for me, it's been an amazing profession. It's let me do you know everything I wanted to do. I wanted to write, I, I write. Um, you know, I wanted to travel, I travel. I wanted to educate and empower, I educate and empower. You can literally do anything that you want. Uh, and, you know, so optometry needs to support optometry. I think that's, that's the key. So you talked about being a ham radio operator, and then even more interesting to that is you're a collector of a very interesting piece of hygiene equipment. I, I want to hear more about that. Oh, yeah, I'm a collector. I, I actually, they would have a TV show about me. Hoarders, technical hoarders, well, wacky, eclectic stuff. Um, so, you know, and I'm always looking for something, you know, and, and it goes back, you know, I, I've gone back and I, you know, being a, uh, you know, well, I hear shuffling. It's amazing. I think we have big rats here or something. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, we didn't have a lot when I was a kid, you know, so I didn't, you know, I had to, you know, like, you know, negotiate for toys. And I wanted to, you know. So, you know, now we're kind of making up for it by, you know, trying to, you know, I, I like, you know, weird, you know, weird stuff. So one of the things I have is uh, 
a, uh, a key, a Morse code key collection. You know, I, I, I like, you know, a, a man is like amazingly inventive. Uh, and back in the day when, when telegraphy, uh, you know, was the main form of communication, uh, we had mechanical keys that would automatically make dits. And I know you're going, what the heck's a dit? Well, Morse code is a dits and dots, you know, da 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 which is a long key press, short key press. Well, somebody came up with a way of doing it automatically. So you press the key this way, it goes, and you can master that. So I have a collection of keys going back to the early 1900s, because I'm just fascinated with this precision the mechanics of them. Um, you know, lately I've, uh, you know, I was always a, let me just shave really quick and get the hell out of here. You know, I never, you know, Shannon would say, oh, let me moisturize your face. I go, eh, you know, wow, I don't need my face moisturized. You know, so anyway, I'm looking on YouTube for something else and I see this uh, thing on uh, wet shaving and I go, Oh, that looks kind of interesting. Uh, little that I know would lead to like a hundred safety razors. You know, now I have a collection, and I'm fascinated by the Gillette razors of the 1960s because it kind of goes back to, you know, my dad. You know, again, you know, it goes back to your history. And I'd see my dad shaving and go, oh, you know, and I walk around with you know, like a, a piece of paper on his face, you know, because right. we get a little cut. So, you know, I uh, I kind of enjoy wet shaving. You know, go through the the ritual. You know, I soap up the thing, and you know, <laughs> I don't sing. I, I wouldn't do that. To, to, I don't know the neighbors, but you know, I'm soaking it up in there. You know, that's like, super oh. interesting. So that's kind of, <laughs> I got, you know all kinds of other stuff. I you know like a folding knife collection and things like that. Just wacky stuff. And and you traveled so much in you know apart from work and speaking. You flew over five million miles. You said. It's really different being grounded. Is, is this is this telling us something about how we're going to move around in the future? Uh, any thoughts about that? Uh, yes, and and again, uh, you know, we we do things uh, because we've always done them, and we don't think very much about it. Like, oh, okay, you know, I just do this, I do that. Um, I, I love traveling. You know, uh, I, you know, it terrified me at first, and in fact, I was not a happy flyer. Uh, I was a happy flyer when I had a Xanax in me, followed by a couple of scotches. Uh, then I became a very happy flyer. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm at the point now where you know the plane is literally upside down. People are screaming, and I'm going, "Come on, quiet down! I'm trying to work." You know, it's like I, I'm completely nonplussed by turbulence or anything like that. Uh, remind me, I have some good turbulence stories for the next one. <laughs> but, but, uh, but uh, you know, the best thing about traveling is, you know, the people and, and you know, the experiences and, uh, and that you can't replace virtually, unfortunately. Now, the great thing is I have friends, you know, so the Australians just asked me to do uh, a, a, a double series of dry master classes, uh, which is just wonderful. You know, I, I get to kind of, you know, uh, share my knowledge uh, and connect with people that I've made, uh, you know, created relationships with in the past. Uh, but one of the things that I've learned is that the world has changed dramatically. COVID was just an inflection point where we had a moment to realize it. The relationships that we have, like, you know, for example, this, 
Uh, you and I have known each other for a long time, you know, and I've had a lot of respect for you. I've never been able to say, Scott, I have a lot of respect for you because, you know, I've, I know what you've done. It's like amazing. And I know what you contributed to the profession and you didn't have to, you know, so now I have an opportunity to say that, you know, and say, hey, you know, you're really a cool guy and thanks for, for all you've done. My friends, the people that I know, I've been able to connect with virtually in ways that I might not have had time to do because they're so busy traveling. And, you know, how much time do you spend on a plane to get to a place to do what you really need to do? Uh, and again, it goes back to what you asked before, you know, how's optometry its own worst enemy? We need to recognize that virtual education is as powerful, if not more powerful, than uh, conventional in-person education. Not that in-person education is bad and we'll have to come up with ways of funding our state associations and our national associations outside of holding people hostage to in-person education, but um, don't, don't dismiss the value of someone sitting, watching at their leisure, not having to waste time traveling in a world that's increasingly busy, increasingly complex and in terms of you know the connections and the relationships sometimes they're actually stronger so not only have I connected reconnected with family and friends uh, that I haven't had time to connect with before but I've actually made new relationships that are stronger uh, and in terms of education you know, we I did a dry eye master class that I think had 2,000 uh, people showing up you know so imagine instead of you know going to a, a, an auditorium you know hot sweaty whatever and reaching Maybe if I'm lucky, 300 people, you know, 250, 400 people, 2,000 people on of their own volition sat there, and and we had two hours of CE, and now we're uh, in the first one of non-CE, and I think you know, 1,500, 1,600 stayed for the non-CE. Uh, because that was where I could actually talk about specific things. So, you know, we do want that education and we're responsible enough to do it in the right way. Uh, so maybe we need to stop and say, okay, what did COVID do that we can use for the better? You know, uh, it can't all be bad. I mean, it, it shouldn't all be bad. So let's make it, you know, let's make it something that makes us better. And as much as we've talked about all of this, optometry's future is really bright. Uh, yeah. you, get, you get the closing comment on that. Uh, well, yes, optometry, you know, it's so funny. Uh, I remember uh, as a resident, uh, I got a copy of a, uh, a newsletter called the Penn Physicians Education Network. And I think it came out of Pennsylvania. And it was, dis it was disheartening. It was, it was disheartening because they had their uh, optometry murder of the month. Uh, that they featured. Some optometrist killed some patient, uh, you know, with dilating drops. You know, when Mr. Jones's heart stopped from medriasil overdosing. Uh, okay, you know, maybe I shouldn't dilate those people. You know, it was it was just it was just a horrible thing. How terrible optometry was, and how inept and incompetent we were. Uh, and I remember as I was preparing for the boards in my fourth year, I put on I think it was Good Day New York. Bill Boggs, maybe, or something like that. Uh, three optometrists, no, I'm sorry, two optometrists who had graduated from the first graduating class at SUNY and two ophthalmologists. The ophthalmologists came equipped with slides. I remember they showed an example of uh, Bowen's carcinoma, which is an antiquated term. You know, uh, uh, it's basically CIN. Um, it, like it looks like a pinguacula, and the only way you'd be able to know the difference is with biopsy, but that didn't stop 
from uh, describing how an optometrist had missed this uh, and the person, you know, had, you know, cancer that, you know, they, they made it seem like uh, killed the patient. Uh, and uh, optometry, you know, has been kind of like, you know, had been set upon. Years later, um, Kentucky uh, gets a therapeutic bill that is actually amazing. You know, it includes, you know, laser surgery and, uh, and um, uh, David Cockrell and uh, Ben Gaddy were on Good Night, Good Evening, uh, uh, Louie Bill or something like that, or, you know, Good Evening Kentucky. Uh, it was a TV show uh, that was very similar to Good Morning, you know, New York or whatever that was. And I watched them literally deconstruct those two ophthalmologists. So for all those years, I sat with that on my shoulders, you know, weighing on me about how we were just second-class citizens and beat up. And I watched Ben and, and David literally elevate us to the next level. And I realized that optometry had come a long way. And I actually cried. I, I did. It's you know, kind of embarrassing that I you know, cry over Ben, who's <laughs> a really good friend of mine. But it was so uh, powerful to me uh, that they literally made those, those, those two political hack ophthalmologists. And by the way, I want to make it very clear that I don't think poorly of ophthalmology. I think ophthalmology is an incredible uh, profession. And the vast majority of ophthalmologists respect us. Uh, and understand that we're an important part of the healthcare team, and we actually empower them. Uh, we work with them very clearly. We get a lot of referrals from ophthalmology for dry eye. They understand that I'm good at what I do. I understand they're good at what they do. We inter-refer, um, you know, but we also don't send out corneal ulcers. You know, we managed every corneal ulcer since we opened the office. So I'm, uh, I understand that we all have our roles. I have nothing against ophthalmology. I just wish they'd stop, you know, trying to uh, uh, stop water from eroding rock. You know, we, we are water, and, and I think that's probably the most important closing comment I could make about that. Um, look at where we were and look at where we are. We serve a purpose and we do it well. We take care of people. We change their lives. We save lives. We save sight. We're competent. We're capable. And legislators ultimately will realize that. You can spend as much money as you want, but ultimately we will prevail. And at some point, I think optometry and ophthalmology will find a path towards some form of reconciliation or maybe even synergy where we merge into one continuous eye care uh, profession uh, that works well. And we actually see that in in China, where you have ophthalmologists who actually proudly recall themselves optometrists. So uh, I think the future is bright. I think we just need to get past some bumps. They're coming. Uh, we can see it. You know, technology is going to be a challenge for some. Uh, you know, right now we're, we're uh, I just wrote an editorial last week about this uh, National Association of Optometrists and Opticians that has nothing to do with optometrists or opticians. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that commercial optometry is going to be very different in just a few years. Uh, you know, we can convince the public that uh, robotic devices can do eye exams and the public will buy it because you can convince the public of anything with enough money.
money. Uh, optometry needs to embrace medical eye care and independence from commercial entities as much as possible. That's something I'm going to be focusing on you know, uh, a lot to the consternation of some of the commercial uh, providers, I suspect. But optometry needs to take care of itself and not rely on uh, entities that once were for optometry by optometry, but really aren't anymore. I mean, we both believe that optometrists control their destiny. Wherever they practice, they have to deliver to the patient what the patient deserves. And I think that uh, we're aligned on that. And it's because of people like you and others you've mentioned that we are where we are. Uh, and so I get this opportunity to thank you for your commitments and contributions to the profession, because without them, um, we wouldn't have the standing in the public's eye and in ophthalmology's eye and all the things you've done behind the scenes with the FDA and others. And so I just want to, on behalf of the group, uh, say thank you. And also thank you for sharing all your stories. They were really wonderful. No, no, I appreciate it. I, I feel like we're just going to, you know, this is almost like a therapy session. We should meet like once a week. I'm feeling much better now. <laughs> uh, there, there, may be, there may be some special sessions coming ahead. Maybe we can dive in on some individual topics. Uh, but thanks for your time. I really do appreciate it, Art. Uh, this was great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And to the audience, as always, thanks for coming along on this ride. It was a great time to have you here. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.